Welcome, everyone. We are super excited for this episode of Beyond Queer Stories. Today, we have Dr. Nathaniel Brown, who's an assistant professor of professional mental health counseling at Lewis and Clark College in the Department of Counseling Psychology. Dr. Brown received his PhD from the University of Georgia and began his college counseling career in 2007 and spent the last 15 years serving as a college counselor, coordinator of academic and student affairs, director of student success, and interim dean of student affairs. In his work, his hope is to help graduate students become culturally humble and competent mental health practitioners through the facilitation and guidance of the learning process. Some of his areas of expertise and interests are HIV-AIDS support groups, transition to foster care young adults into post-secondary education, the retention, persistence, and graduation rates of college students who experience foster care, the intersections of queer identity development, and communities of color experiencing imposter syndrome in post-secondary education. So welcome. We are excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining <laughs> us. Thank you for having me. Cool. So I have a question for you, Dr. Nathaniel Brown. What identities do you feel most influence your experiences? So I, I look at identities, too, as being intersectional. And so I think for me, the fact on the surface, I appear as male, but then I'm intersected by my race, which is, you know, black. And then I think about the fact that I'm gay. Uh, I do like the word queer. So I would say gay or queer. Uh, there's some fluidity with queer. Uh, which I like a lot. And so I think those identities, in addition to having grown up in foster care, um, personally from age four to 21, those identities pretty much influence a lot about how I see the world and how I invite people into my space. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that. I imagine having those intersections of identities to really impact your experience in a unique way than if, say, you had only one of those identities. Of course, of course. It's it's unique um, because I think a lot of times there are a lot of identities that are seen, but as I have shared with many of my students in my recent or my current diversity and social justice class, uh, something that was not written or typed in the textbook is, is that identities can be visible, uh, meaning that it's something that people perceive you to be or you may yourself tell people about uh, based on what they see. I also look at identities as being non-visible, uh, meaning that there are people who can pass uh, or people who can sort of navigate the world without having to explain themselves until the moment arises, or they get to pick and choose kind of which identity is most salient for them based on their space and place. And then there are those who are considered the invisible. These are people who may be recognized as one particular being with you know, a particular identity, and yet the, that person is ignored because that person is sitting back because no one is really no one is really asking or really interested. And so that was um, kind of a shakeup for many of my students, but yet they, they see the picture. Yeah, definitely. So how do you go about explaining that to your students? You mentioned that you work with um, youth and college age kids. How do you um, interact with them? And why do you like working with college age kids as well? 
So I started my student affairs career, particularly as a college counselor and academic advisor, and I've done some some sort of, uh, I wouldn't say senior, senior uh, leadership positions, but very close. And I think more importantly, there's a difference between working with undergraduate students and graduate students, and I've had the experience of doing both. And so that sort of widens your, uh, or at least mine, way of being in that space and place, um, because you kind of get to see the development over a particular time period. For some students, it's a couple of years in a two-year college. For other students, it may take a little bit longer. Um, but then you start to see a lot of progress and growth uh, between that time and, say, graduating. Uh, many of the students I've worked with were required to work because they couldn't just simply rely on financial aid. Uh, and then now in this transition of being a first-year faculty member in a graduate program, especially at an institution where students pay quite a bit of money to have a special kind of education. Uh, private school is, is like that. Uh, it's a different experience because those students are working on a master's degree, specifically in a, in a helping profession that is supposed to, to go out and help support individuals um, with the stressors or challenges of their lives. And so I think my passion for working with college-age students is because I get to see a variety of experiences um, show up. And I get to see different ages. I get to hear different conversations. I'm not limited to a particular population because those individuals who are pursuing education, their life continues in spite of going to school. So I get to hear a variety of their issues and concerns while they're navigating post-secondary education. And so it's, uh, it's not boring. It's never boring because there's always something going on. Uh, but at the same time, I get to see this intergenerational interaction, and I like that a lot. That's great. Okay. So curious to hear some of the experiences you've had, especially in teaching these cultural diversity cl classes of kind of resistance that you've come up against in those. And what, how do you handle those? Because I know that could be really challenging at times. So um, if you could share a little bit of that with us, that'd be great. So this is my first year teaching diversity and social justice at this institution. And I can tell you that when individuals live in a homogenous community and they have the safety and the access and the support to have discussions around diversity and social justice, it's one thing to be in the classroom, but it's another to go out and live that experience or engage or set yourself up to be exposed to a variety of people. But I think sometimes there's this this whole idea of over-intellectualizing the concepts and then not actually encountering them. And I think for me, context is very important because in mental health counseling, there's no, there's no specific formula to how you do it. There are theories that guide you in your practice. There are interventions that may or may not work uh, depending on who the person is. But it's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. You know, you do your investigative work through your intake. You do your investigative work by asking questions. And you try to put pieces together to make sense of what those challenges might be. And then you work with the client or student to um, determine what's most important to work on in that, that therapeutic or counseling relationship. And so for me, as I'm thinking about this class, even currently, I'm finding myself having to explain a lot because of my own visible social locations. And so that can be exhausting in the sense that the students have a hard time realizing that other than speaking about social justice and diversity, that they need to actually encounter it. 
And so the context piece is, is sometimes hard and yet I feel like resistant by those students because they think they have a knowledge base that's higher simply because they know the language, simply because they understand the concepts, and yet they struggle with the ambiguity of actually inter- interacting or engaging with people that they love talking about. So as a professor who identifies as Black, male, gay, um, someone who grew up in foster care, someone who has a special need or a disability uh, that's not seen, it's not visible. And so with that, that is unusual for them because they have not had those face-to-face or personal encounters. And they've admitted it, but the kinds of questions that they ask become resistant because they're not asking for the sake of inquiring into the nature of things. They're asking to see if I know what I'm talking about. And so that in itself can be hard to deal with because as a person of color, you're constantly having to prove that you are just as competent as your colleagues who represent the majority of the dominant culture. And then lastly, I think the piece of the counseling profession historically at one time was dominated by white men. And today it seems to be dominated by more white females. And if that's all you see in the classroom, then there's a particular pedagogy that students tend to expect. And so they resist other ways of learning because of their lack of exposure. Yeah, that's so real. Thank you for sharing all that. I appreciate you. That was great. (laughs) I have another question. So when you are talking about resistance from your students, do you kind of get the, um, when, you know, people go through like five stages of grief, do you kind of get that from your students? Is there a point at which they accept everything or a lot of what you're saying enough to be able to take that knowledge and change? And if so, what students have like come back and said, oh, I appreciate you or like these things that they've understood, et cetera, et cetera. Is that a thing that has happened for you before or yet? I think it may be up and coming. Mm -hmm. I think it will take more than just a couple semesters at a private institution like Lewis and Clark. And part of that is because students at this institution, because it's small, they rely heavily on people that are typically in the majority of the dominant culture. And so I feel like faculty of color really need, this sounds awful in the way that I'm going to say it, but it's very real. And I'm from the South and I know how this works, but I call it privilege through or by association. And what I mean by that is students need to see me as a person of color around white women, and they need to see me talking to the the white women who identify themselves as feminists. They need to see that as a black man who identifies as gay, that I'm not only a feminist, but I'm also a womanist. And so I don't just simply value the experiences and what I believe needs to be equitable in terms of uh, access to higher pay and and to have the things that, that men historically have had. Black men have also had some things, too, within the context of the black family in the community. But the hardest part for me has always been trying to figure out that power and that privilege with, within that context because I didn't grow up like that. So I have wrestled with that not only as, as, a, as a doctoral student because I couldn't see it. And so I had to start to dig deep. And I think one of my professors at the University of Georgia, Dr. Annalise Singh, really pushed me in my diversity and social justice class. And I think because she did it, she did it through uh, the social justice quilt, which was amazing. But she had us as graduate students bring in our personal lives and talk about movements that helped us gain access. And I think 
looking at movements and looking at the interrelationship between those movements, no matter who, who, what groups dominated those movements, but seeing how movements have been sort of influenced over time and how others pulled from those movements to, to try to gain access and equity, you know, and resources that would support that particular group. And so I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing, but uh, the good thing is, is that students uh, utilize our evaluation process. Um, sometimes I'm not sure if they really understand the, the, the student evaluation process, but what I can tell you is, is that some of it is about control in their eyes. Um, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, and so there's this, there seems to be, at least where I'm at in Portland, there seems to be this sort of people are not really interested in authority figures. They, they tend to look at authority figures or people who they deem or believe or perceive to be in charge. And, and so, you know, I've tried to work hard to explain to students, yes, there is some privilege and power as a professor, but I don't know that we can be completely equal uh, because of the role that we're in. You're a student, I'm faculty, but I'm not just any faculty. I'm a faculty member of a specific professional discipline that requires me to gatekeep and that also requires me to pay attention to the code of ethics. And so it's a different thing. And I think students forget that instead of looking at power and even privilege as having dominion and control over someone, try to look at this relationship in an educational way as uh, me facilitating the learning process versus being over it. I am responsible for making sure that students are receiving the concepts and that they're applying them. And so it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing, but I think when you're not accustomed to someone that looks like me to having what you perceive to be power in the classroom, then it's easy to resist. It's easy to say, well, um, what are your pedagogical uh, goals around this? And it's like, well, the pedagogical goal is I think that this is important for you based on how you acted or received information from the last class. So they think some of them seem to think that things are just developed in a formula, like. Do it this way, and then these are the results that you're going to get. And it's like, it doesn't work that way. If you can't be fluid uh, and recognize that the professor is not going all going to always tell you exactly what the specific goals are, because our profession is, we have to have the fluidity uh, in order to be artistic in how we uh, work with clients. If we weren't, then clients might not open up to us. And so... And when you're teaching diversity and social justice, you're having to pull from a variety of disciplines because perhaps maybe our profession hasn't always published around uh, diversity and social justice or explained ourselves in a way that would lead people to believe that we define it in this particular way. And so that can be troubling for some students. And I think for me, I do what I can do. But again, at the end of the day, students have to make decisions for themselves. But they tend to look at professors as having all power and but then when, when you look at your evaluations, it's a whole different ballgame, right? Yeah. It's a whole different ballgame. And so having to get them to understand that the evaluation is a space and place for you to talk about improvements constructively. But I can tell you, um, and I'm confident that, that, that other faculty members of color can relate to the fact that when you look at your evaluations, you tend to see uh, students really sort of coming after you because they didn't recognize or realize that you're infusing social justice concepts throughout all your courses. Mm -hmm. And Lewis and Clark is an institution that prides itself in diversity and social justice. And so you would think that people would go, oh, I get it. I can see how 
diversity and social justice is crucial in career counseling and career development uh, and in group counseling. And so it's, it's interesting, but it's very real. And so, again, if it was taught by someone who didn't look like me, perhaps they may receive something differently because maybe they have a particular perception of who they think a particular black man might be about. And if you go against that by your very nature and by what you may have looked at on TV or in the media or the news, you may say, well, he's challenging me so hard that I can't accept this. I can't receive this. He's not what I thought. Uh, a black man who identifies as gay would be. I thought he would be for my causes, but but I didn't realize that he himself too loved men, right? And so those are the kinds of you know distractions I think or struggles that students sort of grapple with. But again, during the educational process, it's important to go through that. That's where cognitive dissonance comes from. Like you need to really sort of grapple with that and 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 struggle with that, and that's okay. But you also need to push yourself to go outside of the classroom and engage with people beyond the classroom. Yeah, that kind of makes me think, um, you know, you having those visible identities as well, and it sounds like you disclose those to your students. What is that process like for you? How do you kind of decide when or how to disclose those invisible identities that you hold? I think it all depends on the topic of the day. I am using the Sue and Sue textbook. Uh, which is pretty neat, uh, and also uh, the D'Angelo White Fragility book. And two of my other colleagues are teaching the diversity and social justice course too. So we're pretty much on the same page, but I think, again, it's all about who's in the room. And so most of my students are mostly white females. Um, and so, and that's not a bad thing, but I think getting people to sit back and stop overthinking and look around and say, look, do you see the the power and the privilege that you hold just in this space, right? Do you do you see it? And and so just getting them to not um, be aggressive, not in a physical way, but aggressive in trying to talk in between the professors, sort of sit back and just take it in and receive it, and then chew on it, and then when you come back, then whatever questions you might have. But a lot of times, it's all about wanting to be right. I'm noticing. And I don't know if that's a generational thing or if it's uh, specific to a particular region, but there's this mindset that you have to be right versus being wrong or versus being reconciled. And so being able to negotiate how I present is going to be based on the types of questions that students ask in the classroom. I'm willing to put myself out there, seeing that I'm the only male person of color in my program uh, and in my department, that I'm okay with that because it's I'm one part, and yet I want students to go outside of the classroom, and instead of doing it for an assignment, I want them to do it for them. Because when you just do it for the assignment, once the assignment is over, how are you really and truly practicing uh, social justice? And, and I don't mean social justice in, ooh, look at me, I can go out and solve the problems of the world. But I'm thinking the social justice is about you putting yourself out there and being humble enough to sit back and receive something new and different and then integrating that into your life. And when you do that, it will show up in the classroom because you'll have specific examples. You're not waiting for someone to constantly put before you and say, oh, my God, did you hang out with the so-and-so person or, you know, 
there's such a huge focus here on pronouns. It's almost to the point where it's gotten trendy. Well, my pronouns are this and well, my pronouns are that. And I don't have an issue with pronouns, but I also don't want people to use it in a way that's trendy and becomes ineffective for the communities that it was really for. Uh, and I'm noticing people that represent, you know, dominant culture and maybe they can they can do things. But it's I don't want it to take away from the populations that it was really meant to be for. And yet I do believe that the use of pronouns are important, but not just to say, well, I, I can I can say that I'm cisgender. I mean, they, there's a tone there like, "Ooh, look at me. I know this language so well. And it's like, well, that's great that you know the language. But when you go out into the community, how are you interacting with that language? Do you actually have friends who are transgender who have had to really be very careful and cautious about how they out themselves in the midst of their process? I know personally because I have friends who identify as trans, female to male and male to female. But at the same time, I would never try to outdo my communities through the use of language and make it trendy because I know that it wasn't really about me. And in the eyes of some students, they look at me and says, well, you pass as a black straight man. I would have never guessed. Right. And so that that's that's another way is because maybe they have a particular idea of how they believe people should present themselves when they call themselves gay or queer. And so it's interesting. So the same people who love the language, love to say all the right words and they write it out and they type it and it's pretty and it's APA six edition format. <laughs> but then when you but when you challenge them about, OK, on Facebook, what does your Facebook page represent? And then they get quiet or you'll say, well, who was the last person of color you hung out with and what did y'all do? They get quiet. Who was the last person who identifies as non-binary, queer, and transgender that you hung out with? They get quiet. So again, how do you take all of this information that you've learned and actually apply it to you first before we allow you to go and work with clients in a practicum setting or in an internship setting? Because at the end of the day, your personal biases still come up. And if you're not pushing yourself outside of the classroom and engaging with people or making excuses and saying, well, you know, I've always lived over here all these years. OK, well, get on a plane, go visit, <laughs> go visit, go visit Alice and see what Alice has got for you. And, and let's let's make it happen. So that's what I'm saying. When you push students about their personal narrative and how they engage with social justice concepts, then you hear, like I said, you hear crickets. It's like, hello, is anyone here? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, again, mm -hmm. that's the kind of challenge that I bring. And I think perhaps if other people are not doing that, that's probably why, you know, I'm kind of a an anomaly almost because people are looking at you like, I had no idea that a man like you, or particularly as a black man, would even think this deep or go that far. And my way of doing it, I tend to use the Socratic method because I don't want them to view me as having this status to be so high that all the knowledge comes from me. No, the knowledge comes from all of us. And if you're engaging with your cohort members and if you're going outside and placing yourself in safe spaces and places where you can actually see some things, and sometimes they're not safe spaces and places, and they shouldn't be because that's real life. Real life is is everything's not going to be safe. And yet in the classroom, I hear people sometimes say, well, I feel unsafe. And I'm just looking at them like, I hear you, I feel you. But at the same time, just imagine people who are downtown homeless and don't have anything and they can't negotiate a place to live. And so I'm having to challenge and push in a way that reminds them of gratitude. Like, are you grateful that you don't have to go through this? Are you grateful that you don't have to work full time and be in school? Are you grateful? And so 
it's it's a it's it's challenging, but it's it's something that has to be done. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate you challenging them to do that before you send them out into the the world with their degree because that's so important. I know sometimes students say, you know, their feelings of not being safe in the classroom sometimes really means they're uncomfortable, right? Like they're actually just uncomfortable and they don't usually have to feel that discomfort. So it's really hard for them to sit in it. So I appreciate that you push them there. Thank you. You're welcome. I think we're at about that time to transition into your story, actually. Would you like to get us started and let us know the story you have for us today? Yeah, give us the deets. Yeah. You want the deets? Yep. Or also known as the tea. You want give the tea? Give me the tea, honey. Give it I all. need it. I need you the need tea. You need the tea? Do you want the sweet tea or do you want the unsweet tea? I need a hot, tea? hot, unsweet <laughs> tea. <laughs> Alabama <laughs> summer tea. I need it. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the tea is very real. Um, there is a book that has a little bit of the tea in it that I'm not really trying to plug, but I do want to want to share with you. It's called Faces of Foster Care, mm-hmm. Messages of Hope, Hurt, and Truth. And it's written by Lisa Aguirre. And it's a book that really sort of talks about foster care post-foster care. And so these are stories of people that went through the foster care system and they're now reflecting back on their time and then they're talking about the positive things after that, which is something that has not historically been put out there for young people uh, who've experienced foster care. And so uh, we hear a lot of horrible stories, but we don't always hear about the positive stories. And there are many. They just, they're just unheard. They're just not available because you have to have people that are willing to do the work to go capture those stories. And so I think it all begins back, you know, when I was four years old, um, my biological mother has a mental uh, health uh, disorder. She was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia in her early 20s and uh, just was unable to care for me and my two sisters. Uh, one sister uh, died as a result of uh, neglect and, and abuse. And so my second sister uh, is is alive and well. We are not as close, but you know we do the best we can because we were separated many times um, growing up because of the physical abuse, uh, the psychological and emotional abuse, and then there was sexual abuse by the biological mother's uh, boyfriend at the time. And these days, people can serve much longer term time in jail, but at the time, you know, the time was somewhat limited. And so, with that being said. From age four till about 11 years old, I was in and out of foster care. We have states that are called reunification states. Most states in this country are reunification states, uh, meaning that states believe that children belong with their parents. And if not their parents, they belong with relatives who can support the parents until the parents are able to uh, assume those responsibilities. And so probably the hardest thing is once you get to the point where you've gone back and forth between a foster home and your family home, what most people don't realize is that a lot of times people who are accused of of any abuse retaliate on the child when the child returns. And so it just becomes this terrible cycle. Basically, don't tell anybody about our business. Don't don't say anything because this is my house. This is I'm going to do what I want to do. 
and I don't want the government or the police or anybody involved. And a lot of times kids die as a result of, of retaliation. And I don't know that we talk enough about that because the courts indicate that we have to give uh, families or parents an opportunity to sort of get themselves together. And a lot of that is by law. And so that's, that's what judges do is they interpret the law and make sure that people are doing what they're supposed to do. So with that being said, it was, I guess, at 11 or 12 that eventually parental rights were terminated because I was at one time living with my biological father who had not been in my life for a long time. And there was nowhere else to go. After your biological mother is committed to a a state psychiatric hospital, you have to go somewhere. And if they can't find people, if no one's available, they're not interested, then they tried their best as an agency, state agency, to find the biological father that has been absent. And uh, so that's what happened. And um, so it was all kinds of abuse. It was just awful. Even to be abused with food uh, was something I recall. And so it's, it's pretty heavy. But I can tell you that once I remained in the foster care system, there were more foster family placements. Um, I didn't do well in foster family placements. And some of it was because oftentimes children of color don't always receive the better foster families because other people of color don't want to uh, foster children. So it's it's just, you know, you end up getting foster families that are a lot of single people and that's okay. But if they're completely disconnected from your developmental age, like if you're a foster mother and you're 70 years old and the child is eight or nine, that's a big gap, right? So the kind of play or the level of play you might have with someone that's 30 is very different from someone that's 70, Right. Meaning that they're, they're not running outside. They're not doing they're not taking you to any places. They're just you're just there. You're just being housed. And I think that was my experience for quite a while until I got to the Boys Home of the South uh, at the age of 14 because I just didn't do well in foster family homes. And so I had foster parents that that drank a lot. I had foster parents that took the board check and didn't buy clothes when they were supposed to. So that means now you're being bullied in school. Um, wearing the same clothes or having spitballs spit at you. I mean, it's it's pretty deep. And so when you go through an experience like that, on top of trying to come out or on top of trying to figure out your sexual or affectional orientation, it's just, it's a lot of confusion and a lot of stress because you don't have anyone to really talk to. So I spent five years at the Boys Home of the South from eighth grade till the 12th grade. And that was probably the best placement for me for those years because those were those crucial years. And if I had not had the support of my high school teachers, if I didn't have support of the janitors, the uh, the cafeteria staff, I mean, they were incredible. And um, I'm actually still in contact with the manager of the cafeteria because I was on free lunch, but sometimes people at the group home didn't always complete the paperwork and she wouldn't she would not embarrass me she would say you need to eat come on, come on through the line and so knowing that there's someone that's interested in your most basic needs you know the, all of that impacts you as a young adult you know as you're moving through the world and trying to figure things out but then even when you leave foster care like at age 21 i did i aged out uh because i needed to maintain the medicaid which is health insurance but the hardest part probably would be figuring out where you're going to go making friends, trying to make connections so that way you could have somewhere to go. And then there's always this there's always this thinking in the back of your mind that you 
want to know where you came from and you want to know if people are thinking about you. And I think many children who have been abused probably are wondering, oh my God, you know, if I'm older now, will they accept me and love me and be available to me? And the sad part is, is that's not necessarily true because people don't want to own up to the part they played in, in you being separated from your family. So I'm 42 years old. I've made lots of attempts to reach out to my biological family on my mother's side and father's side, and it's just not easy to try to develop a relationship. And so moving to Portland, Oregon was quite easy for me. And I think that's probably the, the thing is, is that when you can get up and move and not have any emotional connectedness or attachment to something, there's something there. Um, it's like, wow, you can just get up and leave. And yeah, I can because I have not historically always had stability or relationships connected to me that would say, you know what, I want to hang around. And so that can become exhausting too. Like I'm hoping that I don't turn 62 or 72 years old and say, oh, I think I'm going to move to this. <laughs> but I'm I'm getting older now. And so I'm saying, okay, I think I can do this. But um, the fight or flight idea around foster care is very real because no one wants to feel backed into a corner. And so even in my, you know, adult years, I don't ever want to feel like I'm backed into a corner. So I chose a variety of uh, degree programs. I have worked in a variety of places and spaces. So that way I don't feel like I'm stuck or I'm limited to um, only one thing. Uh, because when you live in foster care, the system tells you how things are going to be because they want you safe. They want you to be protected. But what they don't always do and may have not considered is you have to somewhat be prepared for the world. So even with being protected, you still have to have some exposure to other people outside of the foster care system so that you can learn how to navigate beyond living in foster care, if that makes any sense. It's almost like you can be overly protected. And, and if you're overly protected, then you can be lost you know, in your young adult years and trying to figure out how do I use the bus system? How do I write a check? How do I get an apartment? How do I go shopping for food? What do I do? If, if you haven't had that access along the way, like some people have, not all people with their families have those same opportunities. But if you have extended family or access to communities that would uh, you know, give you that kind of experience, also known as life skills development, then it just helps, you know, it helps the transition into young adult life, in my opinion, a little bit easier. And so that's just that's just my opinion about that. So it was an interesting time, though, in foster care. But I'm grateful that I made it out. And, and it sounds like made it out as in coming out of prison, but I don't mean it in that way. But some people refer to aging out as emancipation, being free, because now the system is not completely telling you what you have to do for the purposes of trying to protect you. And so, I mean, that's kind of kind of how I try to look at it. But some people didn't make it. And some people left the system. Some people died in the system. Some people were abused in the system. I was abused in the system. So it's it's pretty painful to go from being bio, from being abused by biological family members and then going into a system that's charged with protecting you and then be abused also. And I experienced both. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Mm -hmm. So when you left, what did you end up doing? So after 21 years old, you said you pursued degrees and all of that. Like, how were you helped with any of that? Did you were you able to find resources on your own or did they provide any for you? So what happened was, is I originally started at the College of Charleston in 
1996 in the fall. And I was, I was, I had actually won a scholarship, a $40,000 scholarship from a group called Save Our Sons. Uh, these were a group of men of color who worked with someone who was a pretty good philanthropist and, and who would support young African-American men and Latino men in pursuing higher ed. But the problem was, is that I ended up getting access to the scholarship sort of toward the last minute and they weren't really ready meaning that I had to quickly apply to the College of Charleston. I had to uh, go to an area that I was not familiar with. I didn't really have the support that I most people would receive if they were receiving a scholarship. And then they just didn't fulfill their agreement. And so when you, when you leave the system, you need a place to live. So I've had, I had to use college residents' life as a place to live because I didn't have a real address, right? So there was no real transition preparation leaving at 21, it was really more of, uh, I graduated you know, at 19 years old and then went to the College of Charleston, and that was my residence. I couldn't use the Boys Home of the South address. I asked uh, the executive director of the Spartanburg Children's Shelter, uh, Sylvia Staley at the time, if I could use that address, because that was an emergency shelter that I went to as a child. And she said, yes, you can do that you know, for the purposes of, of applying to college because you actually have to have an address to apply to college. Whereas in P-12 settings, you've got the McKinney veto legislation that says people don't necessarily have to have an address and you need to work with that population if they're considered to be homeless or what we call today houseless. Um, so it's pretty deep, but those were the times in the 90s. So I was in high school from 90, 1993 to 1996. And so that transition from Greenville, South Carolina to uh, Charleston, South Carolina was a big step for me. Uh, I'd never really been there before. I didn't know anybody there. I didn't know anyone at the, at the, at the college. So it was kind of a lonely process, but then what am I going to do for the weekends? What am I going to do for the summer? I had nowhere to go. And so my previous house mother, uh, and her husband at the boys home, the South retired, and then they had their foster care license. They still had it. And so I was able to go and spend the weekend with them you know, because, but they weren't get, getting paid, right? And so you're having to navigate and figure out what to do in the midst of, you know, the times when you're not actually on campus. So I didn't have a real place to stay or live after that. So by today's standards, I would have been considered houseless um, and utilizing student financial aid to support myself. And then, of course, I worked. So the Department of Social Services in South Carolina is what it's called there. Uh, provided, I think, $2,500, but they didn't send it in time. So I transferred from the College of Charleston uh, to Southern Wesleyan University, which was a, a private Christian school, and just had to try to make it work just so I could have a place to live and to do. When I was at the College of Charleston, I had been attacked. My stuff was stolen. I had an emotional breakdown to the point of uh, attempting suicide. So that was one of the reasons for the transfer and taking medical leave. So it's, it was very jarring to transition and not have the support. And again, support is, is not just a feeling inside you. The support is, is, okay, where am I going to live during the breaks? Who can I call if I need help around medical stuff? Where do I go when I need to get my books? How can I get a job at the college or within the community so that way I can pay for some things that the that the loans or the scholarships might not pay for? Uh, and then communication in general and just having someone to sit down and talk to, not one-on-one, -on -one, but more like group. And so it was a big thing to be not only first generation, but 
to be someone that grew up in foster care uh, who was was average. I mean, I had average grades. And so, again, if you're not encouraged to see yourself in a particular place, a person can develop imposter syndrome easily, right? So if you're navigating being foster care, dealing with trying to come out as a gay person, being black, being male, a male who's going into female-dominated professions, that's heavy. And then ultimately, I ended up going from the College of Charleston, Southern Western University, Clemson University, and then I eventually graduated from Lander University. But during those times, I worked full-time, and that was very exhausting to work 16-hour shifts on Saturday and Sunday, and then eight-hour shifts on Friday, and then taking classes during the day, and then doing a work-study during the day as well. I was exhausted. And so today, though, the good thing is is that there is uh, there are resources available for young people in foster care, but at the time, they weren't out there as much. And so that's, you know, hopefully that helps you understand sort of that transition. It's, it was very, um, it was very jarring, right? And then, and then the scholarship people didn't even follow through on it. They were like, well, we need you to apply for grants. And, you know, but I was also on the media, like, I was in a newspaper a lot, and they, I was on TV, and they, you know, it helped them raise money, but it didn't help me pay off any loans. It didn't help me pay off anything. I sort of, I have more loan debt today at 42 years old that could have been enough to buy two or three houses. And it, it's because I had to take out loans to, to live, right, to pay bills, to go to the hospital, to do things. And I don't think people realize that. And so some people would say, well, gosh, shouldn't you have a house by now? I'm still renting, right? I have enough, I have enough student loans from the transfers from graduate school to buy at least three houses. And that's disturbing, but it's real. So if I had had some support early on, like how to get a car, how, how, to, how to do it without you know, being treated a certain way with uh, people who are selling you cars and that kind of thing, you know, I might not have as much student loan debt. In fact, I may not have any because somebody would have been like, oh, look, you need to apply for this. Or there was just no guidance or mentorship or it was just surviving, just trying to make it through and, and you know, trying to figure out, oh, my goodness, what do I do with this? And how do I eat this? And where do I go for this? And there was just nobody there. Whereas, you know, a lot of the students that I'm working with right now are students who have had people to give them things. So. For a lot of them, this will be the first time they've actually had to work. Like they, they weren't required. They didn't have to do part time. They didn't. Uh, they don't have to worry about car insurance. They don't have to worry about health insurance. It's taken care of. They don't have to worry about food. They can go home. Somebody bought the car. Or, you know what I mean? So, for one person, male, female, or transgender, when you put all of those things in there on top of foster care, that's a lot to manage and handle for one person. And so I think. I did what I had to do to make it through. And now at 42, I'm looking going, okay, I've got a lot of debt to pay off. Of course, being a professor is not going <laughs> to help pay it all off so early. So you have to do what you have to do. You have to pick up what we call a side gig or a hustle mm-hmm. so you can do what you have to do, right? That, that's what people have done for years. And I don't even know that it's limited to kids in foster care, but it's, it's people of color, women of color, women who are white, who grew up in rural communities or in cities where they weren't supported and weren't treated well, lots of people in history have had to bust their butts to make it happen. And so it's not about, oh, your story's worse or more more difficult than the others. It's about recognizing you know, the difficulties in humanity in general and say, oh my God, I can't imagine 
what that's like. It's about the empathy. It's about being able to relate and not make comparisons. But it is important for people to be able to identify and say, oh, I can't believe this happened or, oh, I can't imagine what this was like. And so there's validation is needed, right? Uh, most of us need that. And we do that in counseling as we let people know that their feelings and their thoughts uh, are very, very important. Their story is very important. And so, but I'm grateful. I've had a lot of white women in my life uh, from the South that were supportive, that saw me as a black gay man and said, we don't give a damn that you black and gay. But they also shared a part of themselves. And I think that's important in doing this work is it's very difficult to go and try to help somebody else, in my opinion, if you don't reflect on where you've come from and where you've been and what you're trying to do. It doesn't mean you have to do it in a counseling session, but you should know something about yourself before you start working with other people. That's Those are my thoughts around that. Yeah, that's so real. I appreciate that. I'm a first-generation college student um, myself. I get that whole student loan debt and being at the point where I'm about to graduate and all those start kicking in, I really appreciate you talking about making it happen and the real experience of what that's like to hold that, you know, once you've you know, checked all those boxes of degrees off and you've finished that and succeeded and got the job, that's still always hanging there. At least that's mm. like what I'm thinking about as I'm excited about finishing that like you said, I could buy a couple houses, you know, or I should be able to buy a couple. I probably will never buy a house. Mm. Um, I won't be able to. And facing that reality can be so challenging um, mm -hmm. because people look at you and they're like, look at you. You succeeded. You made it. And it's like, mm -hmm. it'd be nice to own some property and, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, but, you know, when you look at other people who, you know, I imagine that or even in your department who can do those things, right? Like it's, it's not that it's the same for everybody just because you achieve that same level, you know? Right. And so, and typically what people tend to want to hear is they like to hear the celebrations. Right. They, they want to, I want to come to graduation. I want to do this. But when you were in the midst of it, mm -hmm. again, crickets mm -hmm. blinking my eyes, like what? Like, so just the, a lack of consideration and understanding for what the journey looks like before you celebrate. Um, I do have a, a wonderful white female mentor by the name of, name of Jean McGee. She's 80 years old, and she has known me since I was 13 years old. She taught me how to read better and how to do math better. And for all these years, um, we've just built a great friendship in yeah, I think it was, I remember the first time she says, I love you, Nathan. It was something I had not heard, you know, before. But what I can tell you is that with her identifying as a white Southern feminist, she was the kind of person that says, well, I keep hearing stuff about womanism. What is it? So that type of intellectual curiosity means I'm interested in learning. I'm interested in, 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 in learning more. And she loves to read. And so, but the thing is, this is someone who will say, well, let's go to the theater. We went to go see Billy Elliot a few years back at the Peace Center. And she's, like I said, she's much older than me. And she's white. And so she, she wraps her arm around mine. And, mm -hmm. you know, you get stared at. And, and she's like, you see that? I said, I see him. But don't worry. Let's keep playing. Let's act along. Let's just <laughs> go along with it. And so I hung around her. And we drank a little bit of beer, wine, and we giggled and I hugged mm -hmm. on her and people were just like, what the heck is that about? Like, you, don't, you don't worry about that. You don't worry about that. That's but uh, but it, it was good. And so 
but she she recognizes and goes, I had no idea. I wasn't even thinking about her own privilege as a as a white female in that community. And she says, Well, I don't care what they say or think. You know, we love each other. So what? And so it's one of those things. And so it's it's heavy because she'll call me now. She calls me now and says, When are you coming home? <laughs> oh, she misses you. Yeah. So it's pretty awesome. And so I'm grateful. So yeah, there were some rough times growing up uh, in the biological family and also in foster care, but there were also some good times. And I think the book that I mentioned to you, uh, Faces of Foster Care, Messages of Hope, Hurt, and Truth, uh, talks about that through the stories. And so I have a little contribution in there, uh, as well as many of the other young people that you know came through that system. And um and of course, there were articles uh, that were written, uh, a few articles that sort of allowed me to sort of share. And I think there is power or influence, I would rather say, in sharing your narrative so people can say, it's okay to talk about it. Because where I come from, uh, being from originally from South Carolina, and then, of course, living in Georgia for 15 years, taboos are are real in a lot of communities of color, but also in white communities, too. So people, you know, say, let's not talk about that. That's not the right time or no one's interested. And so people internalize that for a long time and they develop shame and they develop embarrassment and then they struggle with their own identity because they couldn't process it. So that's one thing that's beautiful about the counseling profession and a lot of helping professions is that teaching people to be able to process in a safe space, you know, gives them, you know, um, voice, uh, to their own issues so they can learn to work through that. But yet at the same time, turn around and be a testament or a testimony, as we might say in some of the black churches and white churches, that being able to share that story of going through, but also coming out of, that's where your resiliency is at, is when you come out of it, you bounce back or have the ability to bounce back. But um, yeah, that's how it goes. <laughs> I feel like I could have this conversation for hours. I don't know. I, I, a part of me wants to like, kind of have you elaborate more on the imposter syndrome that you mentioned? Because I know, like, I just was reading about it a few days ago. Like, people don't really think about, I mean, people who think of people of color don't really think about them not seeing their full worth because of the fact that there are people in the same space that don't have to work as hard and get what they want. On like me growing up, like that's all I heard. Like you have to work like twice as hard, three times as hard. Like you have to make sure you're getting all these things done. No one's gonna look at you the same. Like even now it's like a, well, fuck. <laughs> like I have to keep doing these things that my friends aren't even like worrying about. And why do I have to keep doing this? Or like how much, how long do I have to keep doing this type deal? And for you mentioning that, on top of you going through all of these things, do you think that you reached a point where you no longer see that as an issue? Or do you think that you'll like you ever reach that point? Like, where are you in that journey of seeing yourself and not comparing yourself or not thinking that you're worth that success? Um, I think it's an ongoing process. And I think it depends on, you know, the work environments, but also the spaces that you are a part of in terms of the ones that claim to be more liberated or progressive. But then when you start digging deep, they can't talk about race, for example. So I think one of the best movies I've seen that that deals with this particular topic of imposter syndrome is called Hidden Figures. Mm, um, yeah. There is a a scene where Taraji P. Henson is coming in late because she had to go to the restroom on the other side of NASA 
And so the boss basically berates her. Um, it's, um, what is his name? Kevin. What in the world is his name? Uh, Not Kevin Spacey. No, no, the other Kevin. Um, mm. I can't even think of his name. But anyway, uh, Kevin Costner. Excuse yeah, me. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. So he's like berating her and saying, you've been out all day, da, da, da. All you've been... And she's wet. Like she's drenched. She's wet. She's you know, and there is a white woman there, but the white woman is not able to speak up in the way that you would think. You could see those identities. So there was two women th- there, and they're dominated by white men in that space. But yet, you could see where race trumped gender in that particular scene, where the white woman is just kind of holding the files and like, there's nothing I can do at this point because I'm female, but I'm also white female, so I have to move to that space. And so, but. Taraji P. Henson is having to say, you know, I work day in, day night, you know, I walk, I'm having to do all of these different things that you all don't have to do. And y'all don't even want to, y'all don't even want me to use the same coffee pot that you're using. Like she can't even touch, they don't even want to touch anything. And so I can't know what that's like, but I can know from a race standpoint, I don't know what it would be like to be a black woman at NASA going through what she had to go through. And the fact that it's a true story makes it even more meaningful. But the fact that you're having to work twice as hard seems to create the imposter syndrome because you're wondering if you're ever going to be good enough. You're always wondering if you're ever going to be good enough. And so we've been socialized, I think, as people of color because we notice that some groups get further along than others. And the fact that skin color is still important, and that's why we talk about race so much, because it's really more colorism, right? Darker-skinned people versus lighter-skinned people. I mean, this happens within communities of color, but it's amplified even more because of how the dominant culture has created this division between color and, and who's more able to do things versus who is not. And so, you know, I'm at a predominantly white institution. And so, you know, I'm working my butt off, and yet... There could be other people, I'm not suggesting that there are, but there could be other people that's just chilling, just just laid back. And I might see that, but I'm just like, wow. So we, we can just we can just lay back our toes out. Damn. I'm, you know, I'm like, wow, we just, we just chilling. I'm like, but I thought, you know, people are paying good good money. We're looking at, you know, I'm like, damn, they paying this kind of money and, and you did what in the class and that's all you did? Okay, wow. That's now if I had done that. Right. If I didn't push myself two or three times as hard. Right. Because, see, when you're when you're when there are very few of people of color in a space, it's like, well, they let you in. That's heavy, because when you get questioned around your competence or if someone comes to you and says, um, you know, I, I think I'm going to have this particular person as an advisor because I'm a non-traditional student. And yet my background is working with non-traditional students. But what mm-hmm. the whole idea of. One thing I can say about microaggressions is I would rather, as I shared, I would rather someone explicitly call me a nigger to my face than to microaggress around me to the point where you go, well, what in the world? Because microaggressions will confuse you. You'll be like, is it me? Or am I being oversensitive? Or mm-hmm. did you just say, what, what did you say? Well, I'm changing advisors because, you know, this person has more of a research uh, background and understanding. And then you start looking at your diploma going, 
damn, six years at UGA? I know what y'all <laughs> did to me. Like, oh my God. I'm sitting here looking now going, oh my God. Did you just try to make it seem like I don't have a background in research? Even Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. but, that, but even people of color will do that to each other. Mm. And then there are people who on their skin might be white, but may, they may identify as Asian. So they don't see themselves as people of color. They still view themselves as white. There are Hispanics and Latinos who, who say the same thing. They say, I'm white and Hispanic. And that's not an issue, but in the context of being a person of color, it's important to recognize that people of color are treated differently because of their color. Do you, do you understand? So a person could be a different ethnic origin and still be white. And if they're able to blend in, People tend to hype up that ethnic origin versus if you're black, skin-wise black, and you say, well, I'm actually uh, African-German. And they just look at you like, um, how is that possible? Because you're black. <laughs> Do you understand? So yeah. even, even a, a, a course in genetics, because people don't understand genetics, you know, they don't understand that you could be Native American and black. They don't, mm-hmm. they don't seem to get that. They mm-hmm. think that if your physical features don't match your ethnic origin, that that's not you. And so that in itself is a bias, right? Mm -hmm. That's heavy. And so, again, we'll use President Barack Obama. He is listed as or presented as the first black African-American president. It's because of his skin. He doesn't even have Mm -hmm. get any credit for his the fact that his mother's white. Right. (laughs) So I'm just saying, like, it doesn't matter. At least it, it comes across as not mattering the fact that he's biracial, but it does matter, right? Because mm-hmm. that's part of him. What seems to be m- most important for a lot of people is that his skin is brown or mm-hmm. it's darker, right? We hear that, oh, it's the first black president. Okay, <clears throat> but he's actually biracial. So would he be considered the first biracial and black president? Can he get, mm-hmm. like, why is it that people of color can't get credit for all of their ethnicity? Why is there still shame and and a feeling of oh i have to explain myself because of what i look why can't i be looked at as being a beautiful person because of my skin color but that's what people struggle with you know students faculty staff people outside of higher education because you're having to try to thrive and maneuver in a system that historically wasn't even set up for you so the history lingers is my point it lingers and so people having to be in my class now i'm having to show films back in the day so they can understand how microaggressions developed or were created Mm -hmm. and so they're like well why do we have to talk about race all the time so let's go back can we go all the way back Mm -hmm. let's go all the way back like all the way back Mm -hmm. like let's let's start with christopher columbus let's go there Mm -hmm. let's start with that now did he find america because America was lost, or was he stumbled upon <laughs> America because he was lost? He was trying right? to get together. <laughs> so let's talk about that. <laughs> right. And so they're looking at me like, well, no, that's not what the book said. And I said, well, which book did you read? Mm-hmm. Yeah. First of all, are you reading only books by people who come from a European-American background? Let's start there. Mm-hmm. Do you know anything about W.B. Du Bois or Booker T. Washington or Frederick Douglass? Mm-hmm. And so they look at you and like, mm, I don't, I don't, I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so you say, well, well, let's start. Let's. You need to start changing your repertoire of books. You need uh-huh. to. Ex- Do you know anything about Bell Hooks? Mm. I, I don't know any. I, don't, I haven't heard from her. Stop. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah, I'm just saying. You're just like, uh-huh. wow. Okay. So when you, that's the challenge that that is is there is because they've only been re- reading books 
by people that look like them because mm-hmm. they value that knowledge. They say, oh, well, this is more important because we're thriving at a level that's much better or you know further along than, say, people of color. Mm-hmm. But then when you pull out books like, you know, you start pulling out books from the shelf and they're like, oh, I didn't know that a person would have written about this. And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, they're out there, though, but you can. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can go and buy the book like you can Amazon it, you can do it, you do it <laughs> and they just look at you and they say, well, are you suggesting that I buy the book? Yes, I'm suggesting that you, you, you buy the book. Go ahead. You need to read different perspectives. Like if you want to talk about Native Americans, don't just read books by people who are white, who are writing about Native Americans. Mm-hmm. You need to be buying books written by Native Americans, mm-hmm, people right. right, who have a long history tied to this land. Oh, I see what you're saying. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All that reprogramming. It's exactly. Great. A lot of reprogramming. And so yeah. just even just getting people to, to to read books by black women or by Hispanic Latina women. And so Sandra Cisneros is one of the great authors that, that you know, the book that really resonated with me in my undergrad experience was The House on Mango Street. Mm-hmm. That that right there hit home. I was like, yeah, I mm, this is this is serious business. So just getting people to even think like that or another book that I I read when I was a kid was called The Five Chinese Brothers, right? And so we know that China has historically been a closed nation. So this is new for them to open up their country to allow a diverse group of people to come through to the point now where China is uh, is offering jobs to black African-Americans. More and more black Americans are moving to China Mm -hmm. to work because they can get paid and be valued, for their experiences and it's another way of integration there right so it's it's deep it's really deep like people want to be valued so if you can go over there and teach and they know that you that you can teach either english in middle school elementary school uh high school or post-secondary education they have a different view of how they see teachers and professors there than we do here mm-hmm. you know they, they're not acting uh-uh Mm-hmm. We don't we don't just open our mouths and say what we want to say in the classroom there. Uh-uh. They're not having that, right? But here, well, we just come out our mouths with anything. I'm not taking that exam. I'm mm-hmm. just this this damn exam is arbitrary. Oh, you came out like that with your mouth and then you put it in the email? Wow. That's, <laughs> that's bold. Wow. Wow. Like I I'm 42 and I would have never communicated with mm-hmm. professors, but that has happened to me since I've been wow. here. Mhm. Right. So that the level of boldness, I thought, well, maybe if I'm yeah. 62, 65, you know, I'll see some of that. But mm-mm. people get brand new. Wow. They exi- this question is wrong. This is not the right answer. On oh. here. <laughs> That's bold. Um, let me let me take you there. Come on in the office. Come on in. <laughs> but now I have to change my vernacular and I have to I have to go from being. You know, speaking the King's English, where you expect me because I was I was taught by a lot of people who who happened to be white, except for my master's program. I went to a historically black college um, or university, Clark Atlanta University. Shout out! <laughs> um, but I'm saying to say that even having mostly black female professors at Clark Atlanta University, no one had to tell me to watch what I say. Mm-hmm. I paid attention to social cues, and I was looking, and I was like. No, I'm not asking that question. <laughs> I'll, and I'm definitely not going to do it in public. Mm-hmm. So I'm, what I might do is I might send an email and say, Professor so-and-so, is it possible that I may have a little bit of your time to ask a few questions? And then before I even 
before I even get the appointment, I'm going to write down the types of questions that I ask and then think about how I present those questions so it doesn't look like I'm being condescending mm-hmm. or patronizing or disrespectful. These days, oh, mm-mm. <laughs> wow. we just we just say what we want to say. And I don't know if that's generational or if it's something else, but did I just go off on a tangent? No, you're, you're good. good. You're good. It was a relevant <laughs> tangent. Okay. That's that's something I have seen in my uh in my evaluations where you know Dr. Brown can be quite tangential. Some of us like it and some of us don't. <laughs> <laughs> so. Just gotta own it. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> yeah, and then I I'm sure then it comes up. Are they challenging other professors that same way, like the white female professors? Right? Like, are, would they? be as bold as to send them that kind of message probably not right no no it's mm -mm. so uh my former high school principal is her name is dr susan achilles and she's a white woman white southern woman uh, is how she identifies and she said nathan what you experienced last semester is called what i call slash and dash and i said you ain't right she says what they did was they decided to use comments that 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 was probably not nice because they didn't feel like they had control of the classroom. Mm. And then she said the dash part is, is that they have decided to run away. They don't want to come and get to know you. They don't want to spend time with you because they're embarrassed, right? Mm. They know that what they wrote and how they wrote it was very hurtful. And so I said, yeah, they love to avoid here, but these are the first people. They love to avoid conversation, but they are very quick to say, I want to go work with Latino students. Mm. I want to go work with the black students. And so you just look at them like, no, you don't. You're not ready. <laughs> You're not ready. You're not ready. There's no way not in hell all. you can be ready. Mm-mm. And so, and then what they do is, is that because of the, the type of school we are, uh, they are quick to change to people who are more like them. And so that, that's heavy, especially when the quality of work was probably not as up to par as, you know, the high achieving kind of idea is for students like this. They, they weren't expecting someone like me to know how to write. They weren't expecting mm-hmm. me to go in and do track changes. They're like, well, you know, he's, he seems, you know, cool and he'll, he'll say these things in class and whatever. So I can just kind of skirt by, Mm-mm. I went to a predominantly white institution. I'll get brand new. So, um, but then I went to a black institution where you don't slide by. Mm-hmm. There's no no there's no such thing as sliding by. If they ask you to develop a biopsychosocial assessment, you're not filling in a form, you're typing it. Mm-hmm. 10, 12, 15 pages. Th- th- that's what you're you're typing, right? Cuz then before that, they were writing it. Right. Nobody was typing anything. Mm-hmm. Right? Cuz not everybody could afford a typewriter in those days. So when you were working in mental health in 1950 or 60, it's a whole mm-hmm. different ball game than 2019. Right. Right. So it's it's pretty heavy. And you're right. Uh, Some of the questions I've been asked, they wouldn't dare ask uh, a white female here or feminist. You know, they love to talk feminism is what they do. And then at the same time, when you challenge that and say, well, do you believe that men can be feminist? And they say, well, I said, "Ooh, that's that's mm, my goodness. Yeah. mm, Wow. But they don't even think of as a black man, you know. And then you start, I start thinking, I start talking to them about the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady B. Stanton and uh, Susan B. Anthony. And they're like, wait, what? I'm like, yeah. So there was a black man who was a slave who was trying to help other people not continue to be slaves because at that time, men and women both were slaves and they were considered property, like furniture. 
I said, but then you had a white, two white women who were living in a, a life that those other people weren't living in, and they took up a cause for women's suffrage, you know, for voting, and they needed Frederick Douglass to support that. And he had to struggle with that. He had to struggle with, okay, do I push this when black women can't vote? Like, I'm confused. Like, that's heavy. But he eventually did write a letter. Like, how do you, how do you decide when to go to a particular convention as an ex-slave and a male on top of that? What I mean, what do you do with that? But because of his voice at that time, and, you know, we see that even today in 2019, that people have to pick and choose uh, movements based on their salient identities, those that are specifically visible, right? It's, it's, it's a tricky thing. I think it was Dr. Anneli Singh who told me and our class at the University of Georgia, she said, the personal is political and the political is personal. And she is completely right. And whoever else said it before her are completely right. You can't move away from it. That's a wonderful way to wrap this up where unfortunately, almost out of time, like I said, I feel like I could just keep going all day. This is wonderful conversation. I appreciate all the work that you're doing Mm -hmm. and all that you shared with us today. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you, Dr. Nathaniel, for your kind words and your lovely story. I've been inspired. Thank you. Thank you. You Y'all are great, too. Thank you for the space and place and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And hopefully people will Look me up if they're interested in some research or if they're interested in having some dialogue to push the narrative of young people that are in foster care and those that have experienced foster care. So that way we can do more writing around that and try to make some improvements so those students or individuals or clients don't become members of the the homeless population in the future. So that's what I hope. Yes. Well, how can they look you up? What would you like to put out there to plug so people could get in touch? What resources would you suggest people look up as well? Anything you'd like to shout out or plug? Go for it. Well, I just want them to look me up at Lewis and Clark College. I am in the Graduate School of Education and Counseling. And so I have a faculty profile and they can email me uh, from there. And um We'll just go from there and I'll just share resources that way uh, when they reach out to me. I'm in the state of Oregon, so I'm learning about the landscape of foster care here and have been very fortunate to make some contacts with state officials. And so that'll be helpful to see how Lewis and Clark College can be supportive of this particular population, uh, especially in a state where um, foster care services are very important here. And there's a need for people to see uh, that they can either go to a technical school, they can go to a four-year college and actually have it paid for through the Chaffee grant is what, what it's called. And then there's also the educational training voucher as well. And so I, despite not having access to those resources, I want people to have access to those resources and benefit from an institution like Lewis and Clark. You know, yeah. it's not all rich people that go here, right? So or middle-class people, Lewis and Clark College wants all kinds of people to come to this institution. And so I applaud the college for that. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to serve as a professor here and hope to continue doing the work. Thank you so much. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all. Mm -hmm. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Beyond Queer Stories. Also check out the creator of our podcast music, B. Studwell. She's an incredible queer artist from D.C., and you can check out her music at bstudwell.com. 
If you're listening to us on iTunes, don't forget to rate us so others will be able to find our podcast. Talk, Talk to you all, all next week. week. Next time on Beyond Queer Stories. If I had to recommend anybody to be deified, I would say it would be my grandmother. Um, because, like, she once told me this story um, where she was at church and a new person came. And my grandmother's been at the same church since before I was alive. Um, and it was a trans person. Bye. Bye.